Welcome back to another episode of My Yellow Couch Podcast with your host, Alex Sly. This episode is sponsored by Shan and the Club, an online club and support system for women in business, open to anyone with a side hustle to an empire. This is a place where the empowered empower. I am very excited today to introduce my guest. Now, full disclosure, she is one of my very, very bestest friends in the entire world. Uh, I have known her since I was 25 or 26 years old. Everybody knows that I'm 50 now, so a quarter of a century year old friendship. Um, she is in Canada. Her name is Morgan Livingstone. Um, I invited Morgan on today, well, A, because she's my friend and I miss her, and it's always lovely to, to chat. We don't get enough chats because life is so busy. Morgan is the mom um, of two kids. Um, and she is a child life specialist. And that is why I invited her on today more so to talk about what a child life specialist is, because a lot of my listeners in Ireland won't know what that is. We do have a lot of play therapists here in Ireland, but we don't have child life therapists. And I'm going to get Morgan to explain to you in a while what a child life therapist is and how she does her work. We're going to talk about that. Morgan is going to talk about, you know, how to have the conversations with our kids now that the world is starting to open back up, at least here in Ireland, it's starting to open back up. Um, probably not so much in Toronto. Morgan will tell us, you guys have been quite similar, Mo, haven't you? Um, with the, the forever rolling lockdowns and in in school, yes. and, school and you know that's been very challenging and um, so we're going to talk a lot of stuff today um, but mostly it's going to be about how can you help your kids deal with probably one of the most challenging things these kids have ever dealt with unless they've gone through illnesses um, and trauma, which Morgan also does in her work. But anyway, nobody wants to hear me talk because everybody hears me talk enough. Um, everyone, meet Morgan Livingstone, my uh, child life extraordinaire uh, friend of 25 years, all the way from Toronto. Morgan, welcome to my yellow couch. Hooray! Hi, Alex, and hello, everyone. Um, it is an absolute thrill to be here because I get to listen to you all the time on these podcasts, and now we're here chatting together, which is the best. So. I'm thrilled. So 25 year friendship. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And I feel like even though we're so far apart that we've never been closer because I just, I'm always sending my love, sending it, even when we don't get to talk, you're right. The chats have been uh, few and far between because it has been beyond busy for me uh, as, a, as a child life specialist, working with children in their homes and supporting them through illness and trauma and loss. But also I spend half a day in the, in the hospital supporting a general pediatrics floor um, with teenagers with serious eating disorders, children having surgery, special care nursery and neonatal intensive care babies, as well as the cardiac clinic. So my days have never been busier because of the pandemic even. What yeah, are the differences so. that you're seeing in the hospital? You know, um, here it's so, it's so hard sometimes I think to get to gauge what's going on in the hospitals um, you know uh, 
that outside of COVID, you know, we, we kind of think that it's all COVID inside in the hospitals, but how is COVID in Toronto impacting the work in the hospitals for you guys? Is it as challenging as it is here because our healthcare system is not great in Ireland, our lack of beds, all that kind of stuff stuff every winter we have issues with people on trolleys and there's not enough beds and there's not enough spaces I lived in Canada for a very long time my experience wouldn't have been that of the Canadian healthcare system so are you guys in a better situation to us in that way I think right now the whole world is really struggling period with healthcare but um, in my role as a child life specialist it's really to focus on children's coping period, like how they're coping with anything and everything. So let's face it, even without a pandemic, illness and trauma and loss doesn't discriminate. So children of all ages and stages and walks of life are impacted by all of those individual things, illness, trauma and loss. But um, right now we're universally impacted by this pandemic. Um, It is, I mean, for all of us, even, even old girls like us, we're all struggling with this like it is it is universally difficult but for children they are incredibly resilient and my job in kind of supporting and and creating what they need to cope best and to be and feel successful in the course of their hospitalization or in the course of their recovery following a trauma is um is really a joy like it's my job to figure out what they need to be and feel successful whether that's singing a song all about farts or learning about how their heart works and why we need to do these special tests for their heart or helping them honor the loss of a loved one um, during a very difficult time for all of us. So I think for for me right now, I would say that the healthcare system in in Ontario, in in Canada where I am, um, is doing an excellent job of triaging how we need to do everything we need to do for the pandemic, as well as still meeting the needs of kids who have to have surgeries, kids who have to have treatment, kids who have to have ongoing and continued assessments post cancer, you know, treatment finishing. So there's a lot that we juggle, um, just as every healthcare system does right now in making sure that we meet the needs of every patient wherever they are in the course of whatever's impacting their life. But what I've noticed, Alex, is for very young kids that need to come in or are newly diagnosed, for the last year, so an infant, a toddler, or you know, a young child under five, they've lived in a bubble of really, for many kids, only seeing their parents. And um, so it's my job to make their first really big introduction to strangers while they're having a healthcare crisis as positive as possible. So, you know, while the nurses are taking blood pressure or weighing a child or checking their oxygen level, Um, which can be potentially scary, even though you and I know those are not painful experiences. It's the first time they've ever experienced that. It's the first time they've seen someone wearing scrubs and a mask and a cap, a surgical cap. Like these are very foreign things for kids. So it's my job to provide positive distraction, a little bit of preparation to, to practice what's going on. So we'll often use dolls and puppets and I'll even act silly. Um, You know, I've dressed up recently like Elsa to help a young, very anxious patient head off into surgery for her tonsils and adenoids to be removed. But I did it dressed as Elsa, singing songs such as Let, us go, let It Go all the way into the operating room. So I'm, 
you know, I've, I've always been really silly and very able to go out there for, uh, for the kids that I work with. Um, even Noah and I have had quite a blast playing and having fun too, but uh, I love it. I love being silly. And if that's what's going to help a child have a really good experience, um, you know, before their surgery or following a very serious accident, then that's where I'm going to go. Like, we're going to have fun. And even though this is serious, we're going to have serious fun. So for the benefit of the listeners who aren't in Canada, um, tell us, explain to us, because I think you already have, but just in context, what is a child life specialist? So a child life specialist is a professional that, of course, is highly trained and we are certified as a profession um, to really maximize and, and focus on supporting children's coping with whatever life throws at them. So in the healthcare system, that's illness, that's trauma. In the community, it can be many different things. It can be a different kind of trauma. It can be motor vehicle accident trauma where they have a life-changing catastrophic injury. And it's my job after the hospital fixes them up and ships them home to make sure that the transition back into home, back into school, back into their new normal is um, well-supported. And similarly, in um, the community, one of the things that I've always really focused on and done that is unique is um, making sure that children dealing with parental illness and maternal illness especially um, are well supported when their moms are diagnosed through treatment and in any cases where there's metastatic disease and end of life to make sure that they're supported entirely, you know, understand what's going to happen. So we child life specialists really focus on educating the kids through play and through a whole bunch of really wonderful preparations. What's happening? What does it entail? So no adult would walk into a hospital not knowing what to expect for their treatment or their surgery. So why would we assume that children should walk into the hospital and not know what's going to happen to them? So it's my job to help them understand as best as possible, what we know will happen during the course of their treatment or during the course of their recovery and help them understand what will happen. So each step of even something as simple as a blood draw, you know, the cool wet cloth will clean their arm first. You know, the funny tourniquet will um, feel like a spaghetti strap around their arm, like really trying to simplify each of the steps and stages of what they'll go through in in a child and family friendly language. So in language that children can understand and also being able to play it out, helping them practice it, helping them understand and giving them choices where they have very little, if any choice at all. So it's my job when the nurse says it's time, you know, to give you a finger poke and take your blood sample so we can check, you know, how we're gonna make your chemotherapy. It's me who says, and would you like to pick your right hand or your left hand, my friend? You know, I'm the one who really in a lovely and polite and fun and silly way advocates for kids to have some opportunity to make decisions. So and, and I and I and I've seen you work um, and I and I'm remembering because you mentioned earlier, um, Noah is 19 now. He'll be <clears throat> 20 this year, which is terrifyingly weird. Um, he'll be a man like proper, not even a teenager anymore. But um you're right. You have worked with Noah on quite a few occasions over my lifetime and his lifetime for, for different experiences that he was having. Um, 
you know, for my cancer, because I went through having cancer and also for, you know, other life events that, 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 you know, are, are relevant in his life. But as you were talking, all I kept thinking about was the magic castle. And when Noah was really tiny, you, and I, it stayed with me, especially when I had cancer because Noah was nine when I got cancer and, and I always wanted a magic castle for when I had cancer. And for people who don't know what a magic castle was, the magic castle was, which hospital was it in, Mo? It was Princess Margaret. So Princess Margaret is a cancer hospital in Toronto here. And so the magic castle was of course very appropriate because it's a princess. So Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto had a magic castle playroom, which was my child life playroom. And any children coming to the hospital for treatment or any children whose parents or loved one was having treatment actually had access to this fantastic playroom that had a little castle structure in it, that had a little hospital set up in it. It really had anything and everything that I could joyfully present to children at a very serious time in their life um, to help them understand, to help them cope better. So again, coping is what I really focus on is how can I help this child cope with whatever life is thrown at them? And so, yeah, you guys got to see the Magic Castle and it's a fantastic program. It's no longer a clinical program. There are always changes in hospital um, direction. And uh, so they decided to no longer offer clinical child life at that hospital, but that's actually what facilitated me into going out into private practice and to offering what I wanted, which is outreach into families' homes. Like no mom dealing with breast cancer, um, you know, treatment and feeling like absolute crap wants to have to bring their kids all the way down to the hospital for support. So I changed it and I wanted to offer service that no one offered. And it was for me to go into the homes and provide the same amazing play-based level of care and support and preparation and fun, um, but in home where and kids so are more comfortable anyway. Absolutely. And I remember like there's there's such a difference between the emotional, I suppose, um, intelligence or emotional growth, let's say, over in Toronto and in Ireland. You know, we're still emotionally kind of we've a lot in our in our history that silence us. You know, uh, we could talk for hours about that. The church mm -hmm. in particular did a really good slash terrible job at silencing us generation after generation, you know, uh, shaming us and, yes. and all that kind of stuff. And it, and it still, it, it still lives, I think in our, in our DNA. And even when I was diagnosed, which was 10 years ago, um, next month, which is amazing. Um, I remember loads of people saying to me, you know, so what are you going to tell Noah, you know, that you're going on holidays when you're going to have your treatment or, and I, I was kind of like, no, I'm, I'm going to tell him what's happening to me. And a lot of people around me were quite horrified at the oh, thought yeah. of me telling my nine-year-old that I had cancer. And I remember absolutely, I could have done with you for that conversation because there was nowhere at the time. Now I know it's moved on and I know that there are great social workers that help kids yes. now and help parents have those conversations with kids. But back then that wasn't available to me. I, I still remember the conversation, like actually can't even really talk about it because it's so emotional. He got so upset and I was so upset, mm -hmm. completely out of my depth. Um, but what do you say? Because there still are people, you know, who 
whisper, whisper the word cancer, you know, like don't tell your kid you're sick, pretend you're okay, give them a watered down version of it. And I always think that kids' imaginations then they'll know something is they wrong, run wild and their imaginations will make it way worse than yeah. it is. So what do you then say to a scared set of parents or guardians, whomever they come to you and they say, I'm sick and I prefer not to tell my kids. What do you tell? What do you tell people? Well, um, deep down, my goal is always to help them see the light and to see that telling their kids is actually the best way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do encourage families to use the word cancer because sick can mean so many different things and, and kids get sick all the time. So if you're not careful too, with the language that you're using the next time they have, you know, a tummy ache or, you know, are just not feeling that well, they'll think they have cancer. So, or whatever the sickness is that mommy has and that my hair might fall out and I might throw up a lot. And so clarifying and really simplifying the language is what I advise families to do is talking about it um, and sticking to the facts. So most of the time, especially on diagnosis, and I remember when we were preparing for you to talk to Noah about this, it was, and I've always said this, stick to the facts. You know, these are the facts. Mummy is sick. The doctor found out what it was and it's called cancer. And the doctor and the nurses and mommy are going to work really hard on getting better there will be lots of different types of medicine or treatment, whatever, whatever language helps your child. Um, and that that's what we know so far. Yeah. And usually the first thing kids ask is, are you going to die? Like kids are incredibly brilliant and say, are you going to die? That's it the was, first thing of all ages. It was the very first question that Noah asked me. Um, and I was very fortunate to be in a position where I knew that I wasn't because it had been caught so early. And I remember, you know, being able to say to him, no, I'm not. But he talks about it now, right, retrospectively. And it's I find it still very hard to hear as his mum. Um, he'd spent a lot, he would spend a lot of time with my brother, my sister-in-law and their kids. Cause I was quite sick and you need help all the time when you're going through treatment. Mm-hmm. And part of my treatment was done in isolation, but he talks about it. And he says how every night he would go to sleep and he would, you know, kiss the air to me, to me and, and, you know, ask, you know, like, we're not a religious family, but like ask the stars to keep me safe. Like, and, yes. and and I'm always like you did you were you know like kids are so intelligent emotionally but I think that we think that they aren't in some kind of weird way to protect them from what's going on oh absolutely and and all those parents that don't want to tell their kids are very well meaning they are they just love their child so much they don't want to hurt them but I think kids are incredible like if if anything I'm and you know this, I'm most blown away by the fact that kids are so incredibly resilient. The most awful things can happen to them and to happen in their lives. And they can always find a way to keep going on and to keep playing, which is, that's probably it. Remember, I, I'm sure you remember me saying, the only time I'm concerned about a child is when they can't play. Mm-hmm. And we were always monitoring, you know, still playing, <laughs> he's still playing because that's how kids cope. They process everything that's happening in their lives, in their play. And it might not look like it, but they are, they'll, they'll get this very serious information. Like you might've just said, so I have cancer and the medicine that I'm going to take is going to cause my hair to fall out. And 
you look at your kid who is sitting there and they say, so what's for dinner? I'm going to go play right now. And that's the, okay, I've got all this information. I just need a, a few minutes to digest it and to process what you've just told me. If I just skip over here and do a little bit of playing, I'll figure out what I want to say and how I want to ask, you know, more questions or for more information about this. So I'll be right back. And some parents are like, oh my, it's terrible. Like all he seems to care about is, you know, playing his tablet or going and finding a snack in the kitchen. But it's not that they're doing these things to be rude. They're doing them to create space so that they can process what's going on. And the more we promote play and the more we promote this opportunity for kids to ask questions in a non-judgmental way, the more we kind of create a coping environment for them, an opportunity for them to process everything and to survive and thrive no matter what's happened in their lives. I love that. And and we were talking earlier, I was telling you that I was grocery shopping earlier and we're beginning, yeah, to come out of our third, like we're still in lockdown since Christmas. Same. Yeah. The strongest (laughs) people I know yeah, the most emotionally sound and secure people I know are struggling, like massively. It's a struggle. Yeah, like, and and everyone knows it's a struggle. But I'm a grown ass person. And I was down in my local grocery store at noon today. And I stood for a moment in, in the middle of an aisle, panicked, because it was super busy. I haven't seen it like that or felt it that way since pre-COVID. So we're going right back, you know, over a year ago. And I felt panicked and I'm grown up. And I couldn't wait to finish my few things. I forgot about five things because I was, you know, my brain like went, okay, see you later. And I just head down, mask down, get me out of here, please. And when I was driving home, I kept thinking, what is that like for kids? And what is that like for young adults? You know, who, like you said, and you said it very eloquently earlier, you are now working with children who only know bubbles, who only have the people in their bubbles in their lives. And then they come to you and they're stepping out into an environment with a whole load of strangers. And I know, because I know loads of people, my friends that have had babies during lockdown, that have small kids that are, you know, growing up, in the middle of lockdown that haven't seen family in two years that are well not two years but you know a year and a half and that are starting to kind of really voice the concern that they have about so you know how do I prepare my kids for when the world opens opens back up and we're as adults we're feeling panicked how on earth do we prepare our kids for that yeah well there's a lot going on right there So I think all of us, um, when we're grocery shopping at all right now, are combat shopping. And we're always forgetting a few items because we're just like, oh my God, get me out of here. That's perfect. I I do it. I do it too. Combat shopping is like literally when you realize how many people are around you and they're in the same aisle and they're not using the directional, you know, suggestions and you're just like, get me out of here. So yeah, I would say we're all doing a bit of that where quite a few things get left off the list because we're just like, get me out of here. However when kids are with us. So for me in particular, if children are with me, whether it's um, a child that I'm working with or whether it's my own children, I'm a lot braver in that I am panicking on the inside maybe, 
but I am calm on the outside. Like children are paying attention to our cues. So they're always watching parents. They're always learning from the adults in their lives, not just, you know, their immediate parents, but their extended family members. And especially right now, as we finally are able to kind of meet out in public spaces and be careful, um, they're always paying attention and kids are always listening. So similar to you want to inform kids about what's happening when a mom is diagnosed with cancer, you also want to um, give children the facts about what's happening in the pandemic. Like I don't expect families to leave the news on and horrify children because it's horrifying for anyone to watch that uh, 24 hour news cycle. But I do feel like sticking to the facts is important in this case as well. So I think my my best approach and my role at Masks for Canada, which is a Canada wide, um, like really grassroots group that's really focused on helping um, everyone be informed about safety in schools and safety in the community. Um, my role is to really focus on children and their needs. So they need play, they need preparation, they need information, and they need it delivered in a way that isn't scary. Like we have to stick to the facts. What we can control in this situation is what we need to worry about. So I can control my social distancing. I can control wearing my mask. I can control washing my hands and I can control staying within my bubble or being safe when I'm out in public spaces. Um, and you can control how much time you spend watching TV or hearing about the news or talking about the news. Um, I can control you know, so many little things in our bubble, but we can't control the panic over toilet paper. We can't control if people aren't social distancing in places like the grocery store. So we just help kids focus on what they can control. And, and that's all they need to be concerned about is that um, we can help educate others, like wear your mask when you're outside and, and gently reminding people to do that or to give you some space. But, um, but I, again, just really always want kids to focus on um, what they can control and for adults to control their own fears, worries, and anxieties while still articulating that to their kids. Like we can say, you know, this is a very scary time. And just like you said, Canada and Ireland have been in a lockdown since before Christmas. And it isn't nice. Like I can say to my kids, yeah, I don't, I don't like this, but we need to do this to keep ourselves, our friends, our families, and our community safe. Um, so just sticking to the facts. So the facts are, you know, we go on walks with our dog as frequently as we can. We bake a lot. You know, we do what we can. We do board game time. We um, create as much as we can. And we do our best to have uh, virtual visits with all of our friends around the world. Um, so this you know, in my practice here in Canada, in my practice with families internationally and with the large groups um, and programs that I work with all across um, Africa even, this is an issue that we're all facing is how do we support children and youth during this pandemic and in adjusting to the new normal when it finally comes? Because we're not, we're not close to it yet, Alex. It's, uh, it's going to be another really difficult year, this whole year. Um, until we can adequately vaccinate the world. Um, and in a time of vaccine hesitancy, we don't know how much and how far reaching the vaccine will be, right? Yeah, and, and I was watching on Twitter just before, about an hour ago, um, a doctor, an Ontario doctor, 
oh gosh, I should know her name. If I was a good podcaster, I'd have written her name down. But, you know, I'm not a journalist, so please forgive me. Um, but she she was, she's she's living in Toronto and she was talking about, for you guys, this two weeks, she was talking about um, how catastrophic it is for you guys at the moment. And she was speaking about how she's terrified that your hospitals are going into, um, there is a word for it and please- Triage. Thank you yeah, very much. Triage care. Yeah, okay. And so that's for, for the people listening who don't know what that is, it's very similar to what happened in Italy at the beginning of, of COVID-19 last year, where she was saying, you have to pick and choose, you know, who's going to benefit better health-wise from the extreme, you know, um, um, care. And it was a very sobering 10 minutes and also worrying for me because so many people that I love, you know, live live in Toronto and, and live in Ontario. And then the, the, the reality, like you said, that we're not, we're not even close to this being over. No. So my, my first job um, as a child life specialist when I was still in, um, in a, my undergrad was actually in the infectious disease ward. No way. So, Why yeah, do I not so know I, this? I don't know. I guess just because <laughs> it, it's, it's very foundational. It definitely colored how serious I am about infection control and everything I've done. And I mean, heading from there into um, oncology meant really high infection control standards because of, you know, the weakened immune systems of all of my patients. So I've always been very aware of it. And I did work, I'm an old girl. So I worked through SARS at the front door of Princess Margaret Hospital. It nearly yeah. stopped me from going to Toronto years ago. Like they lifted the flight ban two yeah. days before my trip. Well, SARS was different because although it had a much higher fatality rate, so if you got it, you weren't going to survive it usually, um, it just wasn't a smart virus and it didn't spread as easily as what's happening right now with COVID-19. So it was a coronavirus, but it just wasn't as smart a virus as you're seeing right now, which is able to change and grow to accommodate for better spreading. So this is a very smart virus, the one that we're dealing with right now, COVID-19, and it's obviously going to continue to be really smart and find its way to deliver itself to as many people as possible. Although we know it is survivable, um, these newer strains um, are the ones that are becoming smarter and smarter and more and more effective at killing us. So yeah, the science behind it all is really quite fascinating. And I, I think that um, part of my child life brain is always like, how do I change what um, this complex information and how do I deliver it to kids? So um, a lot of what we do in child life is what I just did there, which is like trying to explain really complex information in really simple terms so that people can understand it and kids, especially. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I think that we have quite a year ahead and then the post like serious part of the COVID pandemic world, this new normal that I refer to is going to be hard for us to navigate because there are people that are going to have, you know, long lasting impacts on themselves. However, when we think about kids and the impact on kids about not being socialized and not being able to see their peers and grow up with their peers, I also always want to highlight that there's a, a one incredible positive in all of this, that these young children 
that, you know, especially that under five, that really critical time in a child's life when they're establishing who they are in the world. Um, never before have kids had so much access to their parents, you know, required. And so there's a lot of really good, positive things coming out of the bonding and attachment and learning to share space with your, you know, your parent or your caregiver for 24 hours a day for a pretty significant period of time over the last 14 and ongoing is going to continue months. So, you know, I, I see families where parents would have been jetting off for work and not necessarily being in their children's lives. And there would have been daycares and child minders and all sorts of other people helping raise that child who had to be home and who had to be with their kids in a great way. It actually helped kids bond and spend more time with important people in their life. So I see that the, the worry of children not being socialized and not having time with their peers I hear it and I, I know that it's, it's significant, but I do feel like we have this incredibly resilient bunch of kids who also have healthy bonding and attachment going on with important people in their life. And that leads me to believe that they will all survive and thrive with the right kind of support. I mean, you know, Noah is 19, as I keep saying, everyone knows that now. And in non-COVID world, he would have kind of flown the nest so to speak oh yeah last year when he finished his exams and his final exams because he has a job uh in a bar which obviously he can't work in now but he's waiting for it to be opened back up hopefully you know maybe back in soon whatever and <laughs> um, like whatever uh so I always say as challenging as it has been for him because it has been very challenging for him um, not being able to go out and see his friends but the relationship that we have now is so it, it's next level you know um, yeah, for sure we've grown so much together emotionally over the last 12 months because we've had to support each other I mean he's gotten to the point now where if I am having you know a hard day because my work is hard sometimes you know and then life oh, is absolutely hard. It's hard in the middle of a pandemic. He he will just know now that I've had a bad day, and he goes, "Do you want a hug?" Whereas pre-pandemic, we were still, you know, we were we had a great relationship, but it's not like this. Like you were saying, the bonds are deeper in mm -hmm. most situations. Now I know it's been not like that for an awful lot of families. Oh yes, but in most situations, the bonds are deeper, and the I suppose my my sense of him also I've gotten to know him as a man a young man um because of this and and I will be forever grateful that I got an ex that I got this year with him I kind of feel oh, like it's a shared experience yeah. shared trauma but it's a shared experience this togetherness that um none of us I think ever expected yeah and you're right there are many families that are not able to have you know, this enjoyable um, time together, especially frontline workers, you know, this is, and frontline workers in factories, in manufacturing, mm. in um, food services, you know, it's incredibly risky um, putting your life on the line to make sure that everyone can buy their groceries, just like we did today. Um, but, uh, but it's such an important role too. 
You know, I think that those children are even prouder of their parents because of all their hard work. And if only we could get government policy to better support those workers and their needs, you know, Listen. then I think society would be all, I mean, all the more improved. It's the same here. I think that's a universal thing, isn't it? You know, if I hear one more person say that being a nurse or being a teacher is a vocation, I'll scream. It's not. It's it's a career, a chosen career, pay pay people appropriately. You know, here they, they weren't even paying student nurses who were thrown into the deep end in the middle of, of COVID. It's just appalling, you know. I, I think I think maybe, you know, how you were saying, where there's lots of vaccine hesitation and there's lots of people that aren't buying into, you know, the COVID. And, and I sometimes think that that's government's fault, you know, and the lack of trust that people have in the people. Oh, we're absolutely. To trust. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, government and healthcare, there's been a lot of marginalized populations that have had difficult times with healthcare and, and government as well. But um, it's also interesting because as you mentioned, you know, COVID impacts a lot, but also because of this isolation, there's many communities and many people that don't feel it at all. So, I mean, I could say, even though I'm a frontline worker, that COVID hasn't impacted our little tiny bubble. Like we know people who've got it and we, we know that they've gotten through it but it's still abstract for my kids. Like they understand about it and they know about how serious it is. And we do talk about it every day, um, especially in the work that I do in the hospital and in the community, like they see me dressed in scrubs more than I ever had to ever. And, um, and wearing medical masks all the time and double masking sometimes. And yeah, they see it, but it's still an abstract concept. They know how serious it is. They understand because I've given them the facts, but it's still this thing especially when they, when people talk about that we're from Toronto. So right now in Canada, it's kind of like Toronto is like the bad city and we're the one with all the COVID and they don't see it at all because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're following their restrictions um, and their lives have been impacted in not seeing extended family, which, you know, is really important in our family. Um, you know, it's been impacted by them not getting to go and enjoy school and sports and, um, and for us also hugely impacting my kids because annually we go to Kenya and I work in Kenya for months at a time, um, supporting and um, growing child life and the child life profession in, uh, in an incredible child life program there. And, uh, for the first year in their lives, they didn't get to go last year and they probably won't get to go this year. And, it is hurting them that we don't get to see people like you and Noah as we always would, you know, every few years you get to come and we didn't get to go to Kenya. And so all of these really important aspects of their lives, not seeing their grandparents, you know, all of these things impact kids, um, but they understand that they have to right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a very strange situation. And I also know, you know, we missed our chance to see you last year because of COVID. And I know we'll miss our chance to see you again this year. And everyone's resigned to accepting that, but it doesn't take away the fact that the missing yeah. is so much deeper, so much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sad situation. There's so many families, especially, um, you know, when families are distributed all around the world that um, entire families haven't even met a new family member that might've been born during the pandemic. And their only experience with that child is on a screen. 
you know, this having a, a virtual a, visit. A first for me, I am tearing up. <laughs> so this is what my 21st episode, I think, of this podcast. And this is the first time that I have uh, cried on my I thought for sure. I thought we would cry. I, you know, when you were t- talking about it, um, you know, you're right. I, oh, I, I miss you. You know, I, I miss you. I miss Katie. I miss your kids. I miss Katie's kids. I just miss, you know, Toronto's home for me as well, you know. Um, and I didn't get to go last year. And I, I genuinely thought this year, like, I I think we all thought that it was kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. We can cope with a couple of months of this. Um, And here we are, you know, going into the second year of it. And you're right, there's going to be no trip to Toronto. And I know that that to some people might sound incredibly privileged, but it's about the missing that I got emotional. You know, like you were saying, it's about the the missing of people. And, um, And I think that we're all, you know, when you were talking about explaining it to kids and you know teaching kids that they can all all they can do is control what they can control and let's face it we need that teaching as well as adults you know um that's how I've lived COVID it's it's what I teach in my in my practice in my work is just staying in the day um, it's one of the cornerstones of, of, of people who live with addiction. You stay in the day. You can get through today. Just get through today. Worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Forget about yesterday. It's already gone. Just keep yourself in the day. And, and the similarities of how we should be living as adults and we forget to what we are te- trying to teach our kids. You know, I, I, it, it's a lovely reminder, I think, to everybody listening to practice what we preach and and practice you know what we try and teach our kids because I think as adults sometimes because I'm guilty of forgetting that I'm guilty of forgetting to stay in the day when it's what I teach every day in my job and sometimes I don't do that and then oh, I yeah. well, remind myself you're not always wearing your therapist hat right so you no. have to be a grumpy parent sometimes and I do it all the time like I, I actually intentionally if I can feel myself getting pulled into that negativity and that blah, malaise I put on my child life hat I will absolutely say get your head on straight like think about the fact what can I do right now to improve the situation you know how can I help these kids cope better when I'm literally just wanting to sit (laughs) on the couch in my bathrobe and like ignore everyone else Um, but when I do that when I intentionally remember to live in the day and to make the most of the day Um, I have to acknowledge that sorrow and that negativity first and then shift into the, okay, guys, let's, let's get ready. Like, do we need a walk? Do we need to change the scenery? You know, would we like to have a movie afternoon? Like, what would we like to do? So I do that because you have to honor the sad stuff in order to get to the good stuff. Um, And I think too, um, and I have my big cry before we I knew that we would be talking about this and I knew that I would cry. So I cried in in the shower first (laughs) because I miss you so much. And like next to my bed is the pictures of you and Noah. And, um, and yeah, I think that the nicest thing about our friendship is that I can just message you and just say how much I miss you. I just say, I miss you. You know, those, you know, those texts (laughs) and I'll just say, 
I miss you today. And, um, and you get it. Yeah, you totally get it. And this is the longest we've been apart. And, <laughs> and, um, and like, I get why my daughter says, you know, screen time isn't the same as seeing someone in person because it fully is that way right now with you and me. And, um, and I owe so much of who I am because of our friendship. Like the only reason why I can actually apply makeup <laughs> properly <laughs> is because of you. Um, so I have to tell your listeners, like when we're together for uh, the beginning, especially of our friendship, you know, sitting with you over breakfast and having you put on your makeup and tell me, so, you know, you should maybe put some blush on today <laughs> here. I've bought this for you. Um, so everything that I am today, guys, um, anything that looks even remotely fashionable is thanks to Alex. So the eyebrows on my head are thanks to her teaching me how to put them on. My, my beautiful hair is all thanks to Alex and my outfits. Um, so every time we would see each other when we were living together in Toronto and from afar is thanks to Alex dressing me properly. Um, otherwise I'd probably just be wearing like a pair of scrubs. Um, but uh, I have in, I'm wearing it today and this is my, my lovely jacket, but this is about 20 years old. This oh, is God, look incredible at it. gray suit. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So everything, I mean, everything that you see that's nice and fashionable about me is, is all thanks to Alex. <laughs> Girl, I am so proud of you. You know, like you are just this rock star to me. Um, your, your ability as a mother, as a wife, as a friend, your work as a child life specialist. I mean, you just, you are one of the most intelligent, resilient, incredible, thoughtful women I have ever met. And I am just, I'm just beyond happy that you're my friend and that we have kept our friendship alive for so long. I, I think that's absolutely a testament to the both of us. And, and look, I have this vision in my head, you know, in 20 years time, we're just going to be sitting down in Ludi, you know, oh, yeah. at the, at the, uh, what's it Ludi. Yeah. The, life, the boardwalk. Life, yeah. Just sitting there station. going, that was a good life, babe, wasn't it? It was a good life. Whistling yeah. at, you know, young men that, that roller skate by. <laughs> yeah we've always said that that's right right from when we met we've always said that when we're old ladies we'd be sitting in the beaches of Toronto in in a lovely you know lovely outfit of course um talking about life yeah yeah absolutely it's so totally yeah it's the that's the future of us totally and I think that's a good place to end even though I don't want to but we're going to continue this talk when I when I when I uh hit the stop recording button before we go and thank you for the wealth of of wonderful um child life knowledge that you have given to people who are listening for their kids and for themselves in dealing with their emotions where can people find you where can people find you social media websites the works the floor is yours there's um well there's lots of ways but my handle on social media so twitter and um and of course instagram and everything is just at child life morgan at child life morgan but um i work with a lot of charities and i write a lot of content for charities um so my breast cancer books 
um, talking to your kids about breast cancer and talking to your kids about metastatic breast cancer are available on Rethink Breast Cancer's website. And um, a lot of content, including the videos that I've created for young children about breast cancer and when moms are sick, everything is there on the um, webpage about support for women with young families. Um, so I'll make sure that your listeners have access to those links. Everything's free and you can download um, my books directly off um, that website. Similarly, World Eye Cancer Hope, which is the retinoblastoma um, worldwide group that I work with, um, also has a lot of resources there. So there's preparation books for children that are having cancer treatment. Um, I write a lot of their blogs. Um, this, this year, or sorry, this year, I think I've written a few blogs and they're easy to find, but their most recent one was about finding joy even during the pandemic. Okay. So a really important kind of, it was personal as well as professional, that blog really talking about the fact that there are still going to be days where it's hard to find joy and then that's okay. But there's some um, great strategies and some fun stuff and even some stories about my work um, foundational work with Patch Adams when I was just starting out as a child life specialist. So lots of great stuff there. But um, yeah, I think professionally finding me on social media is fine. I'm, I'm of course also on LinkedIn, but um, if anyone needs any resources, I've most likely created them already. So <laughs> they, uh, they just have to put my name in and uh, there's um, some news pieces because I am trying as much as possible to help the local news help children across Canada and the world. So they'll, um, they'll often have me on to talk about children's coping and children dealing with stress. So there's, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Go ahead and Google Creep Me and you'll find everything you need. Um, and of course, I can't thank you enough, Alex, for being my friend for so many years, but also for all of what you've done, because I think your growth um, and change over time is quite remarkable. And um, I've never met a stronger woman. Ever. Okay, I'm going to, we're, we're going to stop. I, now before we start I love crying. you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, we'll just cry after. <laughs> thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of My Yellow Couch with me, your host, Alex Sly. Um, a big shout out to my producer, Jay Woodward. Without him, there's no way this would go to air because, well, I can't do that myself. So thank you, Jay. And until I talk to you again, be safe. <laughs>